All right, so what we are attempting to do, uh, back home we talk about uh, listening with both ears and uh, the, the, the application of that being when, uh, when somebody's preaching or someone's teaching, we want you listening with the ear that says, how do I apply God's truth to my life and obey? But we also want you listening with the ear that says, how do I bring this truth to bear on somebody else's life? So how do I share or encourage or pray for or evangelize someone else as a result of what I'm hearing? And if you only listen with either one of those ears, if you only listen with the ear of applying it to someone else, then you become a hypocrite, right? If God's truth's not changing you and you're just trying to help other people, then it falls flat. But if it just applies to you, you get really bloated, get really intellectually prideful, or it becomes very uh, missionless. And so we want both ears active and at work every time. So to get the second ear in play, what I want you to think is who's one person in your circle of influence, family, friend, coworker, someone that you either sense, hey, God's drawing to, to faith and there's some light bulbs coming on and helping them know how to read the Bible would be really helpful, or a new believer, coworker, uh, child even, who's uh, starting to try to read the Bible for themselves. Who's one person that what you're learning today, you could bring this truth to bear on their life? So think about that person, and then I want you to turn to somebody other than your spouse, ideally, that you're sitting around, or uh, somebody that you don't know quite as well. And just uh, share that. Uh, Who's that person? Who comes to mind in terms of listening with the ear of mission and evangelism? Uh, Share share those stories to put a face to the application of this today. Go for it. Two, three minutes. All right. So for for me as as a dad, first and foremost... Obviously, one of the first places that, that, that I find application for a tool like this is in my parenting. Uh, my kids are 12, 10, 8, 3, and then yet to be born. And so as we're gathering at the breakfast table, doing devotions each morning, and I'm attempting to help them navigate life's complexity as they're moving into uh, the adolescent years, which like seven people already this morning have told me how hard things are coming up. Just let me be naive for a few minutes, all right? So... Yeah, it feels hard even right now. So, but we're, we're figuring it out, and we're beginning to disciple and, and bring these tools to bear. Uh, let me commend to you a couple of resources. Sarah and I, Sarah's my wife, um, we wrote a, uh, a, a, a follow-up or a book, devotional guide, uh, for teenagers, young uh, children, um, trying to help them do what I'm going to do in just a minute, which is see the Bible as one coherent whole and then develop the skills of using the arrows to read the Bible well. So this, for me, is one outlet of that. Uh, so if you jump on Amazon, there's a seven arrows devotional there for students. Um, I don't know if I, I didn't bring I should have brought a copy with me, but I can email your pastors as well with a link to it. Uh, it's 52 weeks of, of uh, daily devotions, uh, five days a week moving through the entirety of the Bible, not every passage, but helping them learn to read the Bible in its major movements. And it's got journaling space, so like old ESV Bibles would have center text and then really wide margins where they can journal. So this has the center text, and then out to the side are the seven arrows 
where they can kind of have a built-in journal, which provides a great way for Sarah and I to interact with our children over devotions, helping them to read, what'd you write for Arrow 3 for this passage, and some feedback loop. In addition, uh, Lifeway is uh, publishing a uh, what they're calling a how-to study Bible uh, using the seven errors method. It'll be out March 15th. So what I did is I just, I, I took the entirety of the Bible, uh, found what I think are about uh, 800 or so key passages, and I journaled my own seven arrows in those 800 passages uh, using the method to show them how I would use the arrows to, to do this. And then in about 2,000 other places, we just took a single arrow, and it's got a little sidebar that helps them see, hey, how would I use this arrow to apply to this passage? And again, it's designed to be like a starter Bible for late elementary through uh, high school and into college to help folks that are engaging with the Bible for the first time learn to read the Scriptures well. So commend those to you. Uh, if you're a parent or a grandparent and wanting to help children uh, learn to read the Bible well using, uh, using the seven arrows. Uh, when I think about uh, starting the journey through kind of arrow one, I remember I came to, to faith at 20, uh, summer after my freshman year in college. Uh, Lord save me, I was at North Carolina State uh, University. I'd grown up, uh, my dad's an NC State grad, had grown up just with a deep hatred for the North Carolina Tar Heels sports teams. Um, that has not left my soul. I still have deep hatred for all things North Carolina. And so I just went to, to college to uh, hate on the Tar Heels and uh, cheer on, which like 20 years ago, we were actually decent in sports. I say we being NC State. And so it was compelling to go watch uh, sports. That's what I did, studied business, had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. Lord saved me the summer between freshman and sophomore year met a pastor uh, at a church in Greenville, uh, South Carolina, and he said, hey, if you come to Greenville, I'd love to disciple you. I was like, sign me up. That's great. I was in a social scene at State that was really not profitable for me to walk back into, and uh, this pastor took an interest in my life, and uh, so I, I moved, uh, attended Furman University. Uh, my undergrad is from there, but really, most importantly, was the work at this local church. Uh, it was the church John Piper grew up in. Uh, many a- ages since uh, Piper's days and undergone a lot of transition. Uh, within a few months of being there, they had a youth pastor leave to go to seminary. And uh, they did, uh, Southern Baptist Church, they did what, some, they formed a search committee to go find the next uh, youth pastor. And uh, I was just itching. Like, it, it just... I, You've seen somebody that's come to faith recently. I was just, man, hungry for the word, wanted to lead. I've always been wired up as a guy that was like, put me in, coach. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll kind of figure it out as we go. And so all the parents were staring, looking at somebody to lead the youth. And I was like, well, I mean, I'll try. So about six months after coming to faith, I was uh, uh, the youth director at this church, which probably tells you something about how hard it is to get a youth uh, position in a church in, in the Southeast. I'm not saying here. All right, so that was no jab. Yeah, I see heads turning for the youth. Uh, I don't even know who does youth here. So, uh, but that was true for me. Um, it, it, it was not all that difficult. I did student stuff there, but I was teaching three times a week. So Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I was teaching the youth. And, and I, somebody, uh, somebody gave me cassette tapes for a pastor from Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, Tommy Nelson, uh, he had a cassette tape ministry, 
And, uh, and I would sit in my pickup truck and listen to Dr. Nelson teach the Bible and run in and teach it to the youth before I forgot what he said in the truck. I mean, that's, that's how I learned how to teach the Bible. And I, I remember he was working through Genesis and, uh, I understand you've done that here and we're doing that back home as well. But I remember the first, the first time, what now? <laughs> I remember the first time I heard, uh, Dr. Nelson teach a passage and I, I read the text. And then I sat in the truck and I listened to him teach the passage. And I'm not kidding. Maybe it was just I was young in the faith, but it felt like a stinking magic trick. Because like I'd been reading that passage and here he is pulling out truth and connecting other passages to it and showing me how all this stuff relates. And I got to the end and I was like, just what in the world am I doing? I can never do that, right? It just, it felt so difficult to go from where I was in my Bible engagement to where a mature pastor was in handling the scriptures. And so fast forward a number of years, I'm teaching a bit more, uh, developing some skill with communicating the scriptures, and people would come up after a sermon and, and, and say, you know, man, that, I've never seen that in the Bible before. That was amazing. And, and there's a piece of that that's like, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I see things you can't see. And it, it feels kind of cool to feel like you can do something with the Bible that other people can't do until I consider my role in light of Ephesians 4, which is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which God's prepared for them to walk in. So if my primary role isn't to do something for them that they can't do for themselves, but to equip them to do for themselves what the Holy Spirit has empowered them to do, then I don't want it to feel like a magic trick. I don't want you to walk out on a Sunday feeling like I connected dots that you couldn't connect on your own. In fact, I want to train you to be able to take my place, right? I mean, that's the work that, and that's not to minimize the role of an authoritative pulpit. It's not to say that God doesn't call pastors, but it is to say if we create this vast divide between what the skilled theologians can do and what the common man or woman in the seats can do, then I think that's unhelpful for God's church. So I don't want it to feel like a magic trick. And that's why this tool developed is to say, how can I, take these competencies that I've learned going to seminary, sitting through hermeneutics classes, how can I take them and just make them applicable to every person uh, in the pews? So that's what we're going to try to do, pew seats. We have seats as well. Um, Arrow one, now I'll draw these, kind of sketch them for you. Just kind of a circular arrow. that asks the question, what does the passage say? Let me, let me give you all seven so you can see some, some sense of progression. Uh, we have some bookmarks as well that have been helpful in our place. Uh, arrow one, what does the passage say? Circular arrow that curves back on itself. Uh, second arrow, a backward-facing arrow that asks the question, what did the passage mean to its original audience? Oh, yes, beautiful. Way to go, friends. That's great. I saw all of you looking over my head at something. I was like, oh, there must be a tool up there. Good. Uh, so backward-facing arrow, what did the passage mean to its original audience? Third arrow, upward, what does it tell us about God? Uh, downward, what does it tell us about mankind, men and women? Outward, uh, what is it, uh, wh- how does it prompt me to obey? How does it shape my actions? Back and forth, how does it change the way I relate to people? 
And then a smiley face error of how does it prompt me to pray. So if you think about those just in a progression, we're thinking CC, cadence, you know, memory. Uh, these develop, build on one another. We've got a circular arrow. We go backward. We go up. We go down. We go out. We go back and forth. And then we make a smiley face. The first arrow is asking the question, what does the passage say? Now you say, well, Matt, that is, that is so simplistic that it's not helpful at all. I would argue with you that more often than not in my discipleship and my work in equipping, you read an extended passage of Scripture and then you ask someone, well, what did, what, what did that say? They really struggle to re-communicate what just the simple message of what God has in the text. And we all know the value that's found in being able to put things into our own words. The way that instills in our minds the truths that we've read. So rather than just regurgitating an extended passage for us, we can, uh, we can simplify that by putting it in a crisp phrase, like think with me, um, Romans 1, particularly beginning in verse 18 and following. So the big point of Romans chapter 1, it's Paul attempting to run after there. Well, as we'll, we'll see as we talk through these arrows, he gives us some hints at what he's talking through there by the things that he repeats, but most succinctly he says something like, all people have exchanged worship of the Creator for worship of the creation. That's really like 20 verses packed into one sentence. Sin makes us exchange, or sin is seen in exchange of worship for God, Creator, for worship of creation. And then he says God gave them over to all sorts of other things. So there's value in putting things into my own words, and attempting to summarize what I'm reading in a short, crisp sentence. You might, if you're social media savvy, think of this as a tweet. Like, if you were asked to tweet before they went to like 280 characters, and now it's like so... But back in the good old 140-character tweet days, uh, if you had to summarize a chapter of the Bible in a tweet, how would you do it? This helps me if I'm parenting my children and getting them to, to read, to comprehend and then to re-communicate. Now, obviously, if we're attempting to put things into our own words and say, what does the passage say? The key question is, all right, so what, what am I reading? And anytime we're asking the question, what am I reading, or what does the passage say? The context, where we are in the Bible, or in anything, is going to be the most important factor to consider. Where is this in the story of redemptive history, in God's story? And where is this in the story of whatever letter or book that I'm reading? Unfortunately, the dictionary approach that I mentioned earlier trains us to pull passages out of their context, which I would suggest God is as intentional and sovereign in intending the verse as he is the context in which that verse is placed. And plucking the verse out of its context can lead us to really maul the intended meaning of the passage. Akin to what you might do if you said, somebody said, hey, how about like read me sentence number 6 and 31 after, out of this email that you sent. 
you'd be like, no, don't do that. Because I can make sentence 6 and 31 say pretty much anything I want to. But it's 6 and 31 placed in the middle of about 50 other sentences that help sentence 6 and 31 make a whole lot of sense. So the context is the king for me understanding what does the passage say. Words don't mean anything until you put them in a context. Think, think of the, he mowed a yard versus he gained a yard on the play. You don't have any clue what yard means until you put it in a sentence. And in the same way, you don't have any clue what a sentence means until you put it in a broader context of a paragraph. So it's helpful for me to think, one, how do I arrange the Bible as a whole in one book that I can start putting, that I can start creating some categories to put my reading in? So what I've drawn up here, and I ran out of room, this is why I need PowerPoint slides because I'm really bad at this, but the overall, I would say the overall thesis of the Bible, overall story is God's work to save sinners and put the world back together again through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, So this is the main thesis. This is what everything's driving toward. It's telling me how's God going to reconcile sinners to himself and fix this world that's been broken by sin and specifically how he's going to do it through Jesus. Under that story, it's helpful for me to think about any good story in some chapters or scenes. It's helpful to arrange the Bible in a series of chapters that describe God's unified plan to do this. Various uh, scholars break it up in different ways. I don't purport to be a scholar, uh, so I commend to you any other model that you have of framing the Bible. Again, perhaps the most common is to see the story of the Bible broken into three or into four chunks. Creation, fall, Redemption and restoration. Creation, the story of God's created design, told most specifically in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The fall, told most specifically in Genesis chapter 3. The story of restoration, God restoring all things in the new heaven and new earth, told in Revelation. And this is why I find this less than helpful, because notice what happens here. You got like three chapters on the front end and a book on the back end, and then you got a whole big chunk of Bible from Genesis 4 until Revelation that kind of falls in that third category. That's not as helpful for me in breaking up the main movements of the Bible. I tend to think about it in these nine. I know it's a little bit more complex, but it helps me at least frame the story of Scripture. Movement number one is the story of creation. Again, I would suggest told most specifically in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What I want to suggest to you as you're engaging with these is this is not, the Bible is not written in these uh, canonically necessarily, but almost, okay? So these movements, uh, later biblical writers are going to comment back on them, right? So creation is told in Genesis 1 and 2. But Paul's also going to say in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, that Jesus, the eternal God, who's with God, speaking all things into existence. Hebrews 1 is going to talk about Jesus as the exact imprint of the image of God. We're going to see later biblical writers comment back on this. Fall, Genesis 1 and 2. I'm sorry, the fall, Genesis 3. Again, later biblical authors are going to comment on this. Romans 1 is going to reflect back on the fall. Um, Romans 5 
in Adam all have died, in Christ all will be restored. We're going to see a comment back on the fall, but it does move a bit canonically here, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3. God's plan to restore sinners to himself really begins to unfold most specifically in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, with the call of Abraham. Go to this land that I'll show you, and then we have this promise teased out a bit more in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 with the Abrahamic covenant. But we begin to see a covenantal God pledging himself in faithfulness to a people that he will restore to himself. This is really encouraging because the Bible could have been a really short book, right? I mean, had God not been a God of love and mercy, this thing all ends at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. But we see a God who didn't turn his back to people in their sin, but rather turned his face to them in love. This opens the floodgates for all that's going to follow moving forward. Then we see fourth movement, God's work among a people, specifically the nation of Israel, whom he calls to himself and gives a number of sequential grace gifts. He gives them the law whereby they can know him, hear his promises to them. Not the means by which they would be restored to him, but by the means by which they would live a life of holy worship unto God. Seeing kind of the header of this would be Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the law. We see the, yes ma'am, I'm sorry. Nope. Sure. Yep. That's great. So what I was saying about the soap method earlier, that I thought there were a little bit of liability, particularly here and here, with being able to see what you are observing and applying. Similarly, this is the most common, one of the most common ways that theologians break up the big story of the Bible. I don't think this is as helpful because of the challenges here. You've got so much Bible being summarized here. So I'm trying to, in some ways, double-click on this and give you a little bit of a fuller-orbed understanding of the overall story of Scripture. So I'm saying this, I think, is inadequate. Here's a substitution for that that breaks it up in nine units rather than four to help inform this. Is that helpful? All right, great. So we have uh, creation, fall, plan, people. Giving of the law, establishment of the priesthood. Again, these are the sticky pages of our Bibles, right? Because we're like, what's going on here? Establishment of the priesthood, ending of the book of Exodus. Uh, Establishment of the sacrificial system, book of Leviticus. Uh, Giving of this means by which something would die for the sins of the people so that they could uh, be restored to right worship of God. Their sins could be atoned for through the blood sacrifice of another. So we see the establishment of people who are saved by God's grace and given these means of ongoing worship. Uh, The rise of the kingdom. We're dissatisfied with God as our king. We want a king like the nations. God appointing a king to rule over them. Seen most specifically in the three kind of figureheads. Saul, David, Solomon. But also branching into other smaller tributaries this high-water mark of the people of God, seeing the establishment, a kingdom of peace, rule, but also the liabilities that any earthly king brings. 
can't restore all things perfectly, still sinners, so the need for a greater king. Uh, Judgment, number six, God judging the people, uh, the kingdom dividing, as we see in the latter historical narratives, and then most specifically the judgment that's seen in the exile. The people who have been told you're going to get kicked off the land, you're defaming God's name, then that actually happening. So you can think about here, this broader swath, uh, where we see the writing of the prophets. And it's probably helpful for you mentally to think, though it's not a perfect representation, the prophets can be divided into three groups. Those who wrote before God kicked the people off the land. This is going to happen. God's going to judge. You're not going to defame his name forever. Those who wrote while the people were kicked off the land. See stories like uh, Daniel here, right? So he's in exile in a foreign land and writing on that scene. And then those who are writing uh, as the people are returning back to the land. Uh, We see books like Ezra and Nehemiah, which are not specifically prophetic books, but writing as the people are returning. And then we have prophets reflecting on their work as they return. Uh, Prophets like Haggai, you know, where, where the prophet speaks like, you're coming back and the foundation of the temple is lying in ruins and you're going out and living in paneled houses. Woe, woe to you. Not having that. So this is post-exile, the people are returning. And then the New Testament, Jesus, the church, and eternity. Jesus, the church, and eternity. And these very really are broken sequentially. We have Jesus told in the four Gospels. The sending of the Spirit at the start of the book of Acts that tells about the spread of the church. And then Paul and others writing letters of reflection to the church age. And then the coming of Christ, the prophetic books, Revelation. Again, where we see other pictures of this. First Thessalonians is going to point to the ultimate end. But generally, we see this movement. So that helps me. I don't know if it helps you, but it helps me think about the nine movements of Scripture, big movements, and orient myself when I'm reading a book of the Bible to say, where does this fit into the big story? Is it talking about creation, the fall, people, plan, kingdom, judgment, Jesus, church, or eternity? Context is king. Secondly, in thinking about this arrow, it does help us to think about what genre of scripture we're reading. We recognize that the Bible's written in a host of different Uh, ways, some prophecy, some poetry, proverbs, parables, songs. So thinking what what genre of scripture am I reading as we're speaking to these various scenes? And then how do I figure out the author's point? So if I've kind of oriented myself to where it is in the broad story of scripture, how do I figure out the author's point? Well, there's a sense at which this is common sense. And I know that sounds overly simplistic, but you might consider just like, how do you figure out anyone's point any time? How do I understand what's being communicated and what the author wants to emphasize? Well, in an age before uh, boldface type and 12 emojis after the thing you wanted to emphasize, how do you emphasize things? Most common would be repetition. You point to the things that are important by just repeating the idea 
helping you see this. I mean, perhaps the, the, the biggie that's most commonly pointed to here would be Isaiah's holy, holy, holy. You know, the threefold repetition of God's character seen in holy, holy, holy. But we can see this in other places in Scripture. For example, the book of Judges that begins and ends with the repetition of the phrase or the, the idea, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Starts and ends with that same idea. And so everything in the middle, all the sandwich meat between those two bread, pieces of bread, is going to tell us what happens when there's no king and everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it ain't pretty, right? Uh, I was writing a Bible study for a teenage summer camp coming up this summer in South Carolina, and, we're, and they're in Judges 4 and 5, where some woman's killing a dude with a tent stake and driving his head into the ground. And you're like, ah, what, what do I do with that? Yeah, right? Do I go find some tent stakes and go kill all of God's enemies? Probably not the best application for that. What's God trying to teach me from this? Well, it's the consequences if there's no king and everybody does what's right in their eyes, i.e., it ain't good, right? And we know that to be true in our own lives. Or Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, verse 1, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What's the psalmist wanting you to do? Consider how majestic the name of the Lord is. And in between, he's going to tell you why. Uh, You might also consider what comparisons the author makes, how he points to other things to give a picture of a bigger reality. I imagine the scene from Matthew 6, Jesus walking and exhorting his disciples Look at, the, look at the lilies. Look at the birds. They don't do the things that you do, and yet your Father cares for them. How much more will He care for you, oh, you of little faith? Why do you worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear? Your, your Heavenly Father knows that you need those things. If He cares for the lilies and the birds, He'll much more care for you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, because tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. Well, what's the big point? The big point isn't the lilies and the birds. The big point is how they illustrate something bigger. So we can look at the way we, this is like this. And then perhaps lastly would say, who is doing what? in the passage that you're considering. So what does the author repeat? How does he picture a big reality with like concrete images? And then who's doing what in the biblical text? Specifically, I think places like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What's he saying about humanity? What's he saying about God when he makes this shift In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. It's not of your own doing because you would boast in those things. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Well, what's he doing? He's contrasting humanity 
with God's actions in this text. So the emphases of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is God. God's grace, his love, his mercy that's demonstrated in his saving activity toward humanity. If you uh, are taking notes, perhaps consider 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5 and going to chapter 2, verse 2. I'll say those again. 1 John 1, 5 and going to chapter 2, verse 2. I was going to break us up into groups and let us talk about this passage But uh, for the sake of uh, the rumbling bellies and uh, our time getting away from us, I I, I won't do that. But I would tell you, this is a great place to practice. It makes it a little bit tricky because your editors broke the text in a weird spot. That's why I encourage you to read through 2-2. But this text unit in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, in 1 John, is going to help you see some of these themes. Who's doing what? What comparisons do we see? And how would we summarize the passage in a short sentence that tells us what is happening? Let's uh, move through arrow two quickly before we break for lunch. Yes, sir. Yeah, great question. Great question. How do you define a passage? So I think the question, the question being asked there is, is how do we move through, like what's, a, what's the unit that we're wanting to consider. I think our modern Bible editors help us with that, with the subheading divisions that they put in the biblical text. I found in my discipleship with, with folks that typically having them read from one subheader to the next is a good passage division. My own experience says that it gets really convoluted when you say read a whole chapter, There are chapters in the Gospels that I think are aligned around one uh, organized theme that uh, the Gospel writers have intentionally organized around this one big idea. But often there are multiple themes that you see moving through one chapter, and it becomes too much. You know, you read uh, Mark's Gospel, and you're in chapter 6, and you've got three or four different things that the author says— So to consolidate that, to read from one header to the next, is most helpful for me. And I would suggest in a minute, too, like moving sequentially through a book of the Bible with those headers really helps. Because you're building one, particularly this backward arrow, what did it mean to its original audience? You're not having to recreate that each time. There's a sense at which you're understanding how this book fits into the broader story before you move on to the next story. So I would say header to header um, in order as the Bible's written. Tim, Steve, anyone else, any comments on like how you would encourage kind of movement through chunks of the Bible? All right, great. Um, All right, so we, yeah, please. Absolutely, yes. So so our, our editors... Uh, certainly there's, there's overlap. And as with my, my point earlier about an email that you wrote, you, you, you might see yourself like moving the first idea to the second idea to the third, particularly if you're writing a longer letter. But odds are you've organized your first point, your second point to build on your first point, and your third point to build on your second point. So that's why I, like, I'm commending to you kind of a middle of First John. But if I were discipling a new believer or my children, 
I would start with 1 John 1, 1, 1, and begin reading there until we got to this passage and move through because, again, the authors are developing a thought. Yes. Can go both ways. Yep. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And, and you'll probably see this modeled in Tim's preaching or your other pastor's preaching. If they're moving through a book, it's, it's very rare to have a hard stop. You know, you're almost always saying this idea is helping close out this, this unit of text, but it's also a springboard into the next unit of scripture. I mean, mo- most clearly places like uh, Romans 12, 1 come to mind where we see this linking of, uh, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Well, what's the verse one doing? Therefore, in light of God's mercies, he's just spent 11 chapters telling you about God's mercies, right? So this is his connective tissue back to 11 chapters, and it's also the springboard forward. In view of God's mercies now, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So my obedience is connected to, or I would say actually it's fueled by the mercy of God. Consideration of the mercy of God fuels my obedience. So yeah, I think that point's beautifully made. We're going to take an hour lunch. All right, so we got an hour. We'll see you back at 1245.